Welcome to the Open to Hope show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my daughter and co-host, Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you in partnership with the Compassionate Friends and the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation. Well, Heidi, we have got a really interesting guest today, and I want to say that you did a YouTube with her, and it's had over 7,000 people visit that. In fact, we did a couple. There were thousands that visited one, but the other one has been a big hit, and I think for good reason, Heidi. So why don't you introduce our guest and our topic, and we'll move on and let people hear the good news and the fascinating information we're going to receive today. Absolutely, Mom. And we are going to speak today with Dr. Annette Childs. And if any of you listening would like to hear that YouTube, all you need to do is type in Open to Hope YouTube, Dr. Annette Childs. And you will be able to see three YouTubes that she did for us. And like my mom said, one has had over 7,000 visitors. Uh, We're going to talk today with Annette on spiritual experiences and grief. Dr. Annette Childs holds a Ph.D. in psychology. She is a licensed psychotherapist and is the author of three award-winning books. As a researcher, she has extensively studied the near-death experience and other mystical phenomenon. As a grief therapist, her work is based on the premise that the spiritual experiences the grieving often have are a foundational part of the healing process. Welcome to the show, Annette. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. It's so great to have you on, and I know Heidi was so impressed when she did that interview with you. She was talking about while she was doing it, the the curtains kind of moved, and she really felt a certain amount of energy in that. You know, there are a lot of skeptics out there, and I know one of the things that you comment on is the fact that 70% of people have some kind of after-death communication, but they don't like to talk about it, right? Right, And, and that's with good reason, because we don't have a culture that is very accepting of paranormal experiences. And you can couple that with the fact that our culture in general is not comfortable with the grieving. Well, how do people have those experiences? Talk about what they are, because when I was reading about it and thinking about it, they're pretty normal. I mean, I remember I had, I don't know what you'd call it, a visitation dream after my son died that was very, very healing. And did you share it with others? I actually did not for years. Well, I told my family. I told the bishop of my church about it, and he couldn't make any sense out of it. You would be able to make total sense. It took me years to make any sense out of it. And that's because I, in the dream, he was a baseball player, and he was throwing a ball to himself, learning how to move energy. And I looked at him, and I said, how are you? And he said, I am. Wow. And that was the end of the dream. Well, and to someone on the outside, you you could never express how profound that was. Exactly, because it's a a whole body experience. Well, and when someone diminishes it, it's really damaging for the bereaved. When someone says, oh, you know, you probably probably just didn't sleep well that night. You ate something bad. (laughs) I don't know. I think they're kind of sacred, and uh, particularly when you're at those tender moments when it's just happened. It, it's very sacred, and you can be hurt. It's been 30 years for me, and it's a sacred dream, but I'm solid in it. Now you are. Yeah, but I wouldn't have been then. Well, and the, the nice thing about the work I do, oftentimes I can help people learn their way into past experiences, mm-hmm. things that happened to them that they've tucked away, they couldn't make sense of. And once they begin learning about the symbolic language that is an inherent part of after-death communications, so many times I will hear my clients say, oh, I completely forgot about this, but this is what happened after my daughter died. 
And it's something profound that they have forgotten about. Yeah. Heidi, have you got any thought on this while you're listening? I just think it's interesting that over time how you've become, you've been been—you've sh- shared this, this dream more, Mom, because I didn't hear about it for years. And I was just wondering when you had it, if it brought you comfort. Oh, yeah. Like, how did you feel when you had it? I'm very comforted. It was funny because the feeling I thought was looking at my son, he thought that was a very strange question. How are you? <laughs> he just looked at me like, I am, you know? Yeah. And I know what a lot of people are hearing you and saying, I want to have those experiences. I want to have dreams of my children and my siblings. I want to have signs that they're okay, basically. Well, and I can speak a little bit to that because that's one of the things I commonly hear from my clients. Why would my loved one come to you and not to me? I've been asking, Mm -hmm. I've been waiting, and I always give them this metaphor. To you... You are so full of love and memories and want and desire for your loved one that you can't feel when their consciousness pushes against you. It's, it's like putting your hand in a vat of 98.6 degree water. You just, you can't notice it. For me, when your loved one pushes against me, it's completely foreign, and I know that. Mm. And that's how I know oh, wow. it's a piece of information that's coming from somewhere else because it's not mine. I can I can feel it. It's like 70-degree water sprinkling on me. And I go, oh, okay, this isn't mine. This must be yours. Well, Heidi, I know you've had some experiences from Scott, right? Talk about your outward bound. Yeah, I have. And I love the idea in that, that it's so familiar that sometimes we don't even notice it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on an, an outward bound, Colorado outward bound survival program three and a half months after my brother died and I was going up this hill and it was actually on his birthday and I was in a really bad place physically and emotionally and psychologically. It was a very rigorous program and I just prayed that somehow like that to him basically help me, God or Scott or somebody, I needed help and and I felt somebody's hands on my shoulders pushing me up this very steep mountain and I went very quickly, and, and I just figured it was somebody from my group. And when I turned around and got to the top, I realized nobody was behind me. And I realized that it was basically my brother that had been with me. He'd also been on the same program, right, Heidi? Yes, the, the year before. And I absolutely knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was him. I don't know how I knew. I just knew. You know, that was, I felt very close to him in that, at that point. And it was very comforting, I have to tell you. Well, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, Annette, was the fact that Heidi and I had those experiences, and other people may have had one or not, but I think there are lots of signs to look at in the world, and we can talk about that. But the other thing is, you said something that I think is really important, and that is that you need to create a container that you can hold these experiences in. Because as I said, when this happened to me 30 years ago, Nobody could interpret the dream, and I I told a couple of people, and then I didn't want to tell them because they didn't get it, you know, and I couldn't. There was no context for me. So talk about creating a context, the container. That's what I do in my grief work. I, I call it transformational grief work, and my goal with clients is to help them build a house of truth that can hold a new reality that contains a relationship with their deceased loved one. And the last thing you want to do is walk into someone else's house of truth. You don't belong there and it won't fit. You have to build your own, which is why it's called 
work. And I see my role with clients. I, I believe there's four pillars that I can help people to build in their house of truth. The first one always surprises people. It centers around death education, so actually learning about the dying process. And when I bring that up to clientele, sometimes you know they'll put their hands up and say, no, 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 I don't want to remember how my loved one died. Because that moment of death for most bereaved people, it's a very traumatic memory. Whether their loved one died suddenly, violently, from old age or from an illness, we have such a strong cultural perception that death is this horrendous suffering process. That's the beginning point of the grieving process for most people. It's a very traumatic memory. Mm-hmm. Heidi, at that point, I just wanted you to tell Annette about how you felt when you were almost killed in a head-on automobile collision after Scott died. Because I always thought that was interesting, how you felt at the moment when you thought you were leaving the earth. Well, it was weird because I lived for years and years, and the last really memory thoughts that I had of my brother was him dying in a fiery automobile accident. And I always thought he and my cousin were, you know, the car that they were driving in hydroplane and blew up. And I always felt like, okay, he was probably trapped in this fiery collision and and died in a very traumatic way. And, And I was kind of in that place in my head until fast forward to 2004, I was involved in my own head on collision where a seven, a kid, a teenager hit me head on and basically at impact, I passed out and left my body. And I went from the trauma into this amazing place of, of light and warmth and love going towards that light. And I, I knew I was going to see my brother and it was an amazing thought. I just felt so at peace. And when I came to, after this experience, I was in my car again. And I came to, and the jaws of life were getting me out of the car, which was the fire department and the jaws of life and the ambulance, and I was in the trauma. But I realized from that experience that I really do not know what the last seconds of my brother's life were like. Because in the last seconds of that experience before I came to, I was in an amazing space. I had left my body and it was in a place of love and peace. So I don't think that we actually know what the last seconds of our loved one's lives are really like. We only know what we've been told. But we have such strong research. Uh, Michael Sabom did a study in the Journal of Near-Death Studies that is mm-hmm. such, a, such a profoundly important study that has gotten very, very little attention. And he took, I think it was 60 people who came very close to death in very, very traumatic, violent, horrendous ways. A few of them were veterans who had been blown up. They had lost all their limbs in a grenade accident. One of them was a gentleman who was flying over the Pacific Ocean. His plane began to sputter. He threw on his parachute, jumped out of his plane, and bad day went to worse. His parachute did not open. So he free fell 15,000 feet into the Pacific. His story, to me, is life-changing. He talks about looking at a man falling into the ocean and wondering, why does that guy have my helmet on? (laughs) And, wow, if that's me, why don't I have my boots on? I always wear boots when I parachute. That looks like me, but I've got tennis shoes on. So during that split-second 15,000-foot 
free fall. He's in no distress at all. He just can't figure out who's got his helmet on. And that guy looks like me, but if it's me, why didn't I wear my boots? Right. Wow. Well, let's move on to your next step. We were going from death education to what was the next? The next pillar after death communications, understanding them, learning to recognize them. And most after death communications are not the really dramatic things that we see on television. In my book, Halfway Across the River, I write about an experience that Don Borwat, who I write about, had with a white rock. It's very dramatic. In fact, you talk that's the one you talk about on the uh, video that we've had so much, and people will, are going to want to get that because they're going to, I'm not going to tell you what happens with this rock, but it's very cool. Okay, we've got to go on to the next pillar, which is the third one. Support. Whether it is psychological support, community support, support from your family, you can't get through the process of grief without a strong support system. And then what's the fourth? The fourth pillar is self-care. Oh, I like that one. The first two pillars are what I really focus on in my work Mm -hmm. with clients. And also, if they come to me for grief therapy, of course, I'm part of that support. But I'm such a strong advocate that if you can understand and re-envision death in a different way, that gives you a stepping-off point from your grief towards I love that. And if you begin to understand ADCs for what they truly are. ADC meaning after-death communication, right? After-death communication, yes. Okay. So they may not always be dramatic, but when you have the eyes to see how that symbolic language weaves through your daily life, you begin to have a continuing bond, a new relationship with your loved one. Wow. That is really a profound thought, so I love that, Annette. And tell people about your website. Tell them what you're doing right now. You've got three books, is that correct? I do. I have three books out, and I have a fourth one that will be coming out in the next three or four months. My website is Rx for the Grieving Heart. And what Rx for the Grieving Heart offers is a very simple repair kit. I call it a repair kit because... I don't think grief can be fixed. I don't think we can do anything to make it go away. But there are parts of our belief system and our psyche and our memories that we can repair that will, as I said before, give us a stepping off point toward healing. Wow. So Rx for the Grieving Heart offers, it's a very simple download. It's affordable. It's a set of audio CDs that that are death education and a 50-minute DVD interview about after-death communication. So it hits those two pillars that I think are so important if someone wants to build their own house of truth that includes a strong, solid foundation for a continuing bond with a deceased loved one. I love that, Annette. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, and Looking forward to seeing you soon, I hope. And take care of yourself and keep up this good work you're doing. It's amazing. Thank you, Heidi. Thank you, Gloria. Thanks, Annette. Well, Heidi, don't you love that idea that Annette's got about building a house of truth on these pillars? Uh, You know, her death education, after-death communication, which she's strong on, and then uh, support and and self-care. Really great ideas. I totally agree with you. And, and, you know, I love the idea that, that death might end a life on this earth, but it does not end a relationship. I mean, there are continuing bonds and, and thinking completely in a different way about the way that somebody somebody dies. And I love that story about how that man was watching himself free fall mm-hmm. because we need to not get stuck in our trauma narrative because 
we often don't know what happens at the end, and it, it may not be traumatic. Like I said with Scott, it may not be a traumatic experience for people that are dying. Absolutely. Well, thanks for listening to our show today, and we hope that this will help you on your grief journey. And Heidi and I want to remind you that if you've lost hope, please feel free to lean on ours until you find your own, and God bless. <laughs>